Welcome back to World Review Commentary. We've got a special treat. Charlotte, welcome back to the program. Thank you, George. Uh, we've got a treat. Well, Alan Watt is coming on 30 minutes earlier, so we're going to have two and a half hours with Alan Watt. Welcome to the program, Alan Watt. Hello. Yeah, welcome to the program, Alan. Yeah, it's a pleasure to be on. God, I'm, Hi, I'm, Alan. We're, we're, we're really enthusiastic about you being able to come on a little earlier. We appreciate that. Uh-huh. Yeah, uh, it's no problem at all. Oh, man. How are, you, how are you doing today, Alan? I'm keeping the snow off uh, the satellite dish on the roof. Oh, my <laughs> gosh. Okay. You, you're experiencing you a lot of snow up there, huh? It's been snowing all night long. Yeah. And you uh, have enough wood? <laughs> uh, I hope so. I hope so. <laughs> I, I lived in Iowa, northern uh, Missouri and Iowa, and um, I spent seven winters up there. I lived there almost eight years, and I really enjoyed the winters when it would really snow and we'd cut the wood. Of course, we had uh, wood-burning stoves and propane, and then a, a forced air uh, heaters really don't work in that kind of environment. Mm-hmm. That's true. So, That's so true. Really, I enjoyed that. I, you can't, the constant you can't heat, it's just something else. Yeah. You, you find with... Uh, forced air, it, the, the temperature keeps going up and down, naturally, till the thermostat kicks in, so you never have a constant temperature. But if you've got a good airtight wood stove, you can you can really regulate that and keep it fairly constant, you know. Yeah, I really enjoyed that um, type of... That That reminds me of uh, the, the holidays and the... You know, it's a good time. It's great to be uh, confined sometimes. And my father, uh, he retired up to Alaska, and a lot of times he would be uh, so far back in the tundra that he was in the, uh, you know, he was in that the house or the room or whatever for the months at a time, you know. Yes. Mm-hmm. So. Alan, tell us about. Let's start taking off the shackles. We're on your site, cuttingthroughthematrix.com. Yes. Tell us about those three books. Give us a, a overview of some of those publications you've done. I try to to go beyond the process of expected logic. Expected logic is the way uh, that you come to what you think are your conclusions using the information that's been made available to you. Because um, I realized a long time ago that there was another science behind all of this much higher than was even being taught in standard universities uh, to control the minds of whole nations. And so I, I looked into the language itself and, uh, and realized that that coding and uh, certain ways that put words, even backwards, forwards, very ancient technique, going all the way back to the Chaldeans, they were well known for this. The Egyptians did it too, and they haven't changed. Each time they upgrade a, a, a language, uh, they put the certain codings in for the higher societies to, to use. And I, I used to wonder why people like General Albert Pike, Albert Pike was the Pope of Freemasonry, as they called him, in the 1800s, late 1800s, he said, we never speak uh, so plainly as when we do in public uh, to each other, meaning to fellow high Freemasons, the very high ones, because uh, the general public hear one thing, but the higher Masons hear another being said in the same speech. And it's all to do with the way we're trained uh, to be almost downloaded without questioning what the words actually mean. And so I try to put this into the books, the codings that were used and still are used, and, and I go into the numerology to an extent because it's just a code. It's a language, like cryptography. And it's used widely uh, amongst those that help rule the world. But it also ties in with the goal that they had planned a long time ago. And that was to create a language of mathematics, ultimately. 
that was begun uh, at the beginning of the 1900s, professors worked full-time on to trying to develop a language of numbers, meaning it would consist of pure logic. There'd be no room for emotion. And out of that came your computer, in fact. That was part of the whole uh, process. That The program was to eventually build machines that would think and ultimately control the people uh, that used them. And, and that's called the Internet, of course, the Internet. <laughs> Man, that's beautiful insight. Yes. I, I mean, and, and, uh, I'm not saying it's a good uh, you know, thing, but I'm saying your, your insight is beautiful on that. Yeah, I mean, the ancient Greeks talked about this, too, uh, when they stumbled upon um, laws. Laws contained within uh, multiplica- multiplications and divisions of certain numbers. They realized there were actual laws, embedded natural laws in, in numbers and arithmetic and algebra and so on. And when they realized that, they, they thought we could then conquer nature if everything runs on natural laws, if we can understand these laws. And they debated whether to create a language even in ancient Egypt uh, or, or Greece uh, consisting of zero to one or one to nine and then zero. And uh, they actually had meetings about this. It was very, very important to them. And those same terms are still used today um, in high, uh, the high sciences. Remember that masonry was, was involved heavily from the 1500s on, at least, at least that we know of, probably much, much earlier, uh, with um, science, high science. The Royal Institute, or Royal Society in Britain, was the first masonically organized scientific institute in the world. And it was only a high level Freemasons that were allowed in. The reason they were Masons is because they'd all been tested along the way to see if they could keep secrets. And then we find uh, people like Rutherford, the guy who did the measurements of the pyramids for the Royal Society. Um, he, he was involved in creating a language of mathematics from 1905 onwards. And Bertrand Russell took over that job of creating the language, which ultimately went into the computer language of the binary code. Do you see England as a bastion, as a center for for creating this this master system of, of mind wars or mind control? There's no doubt that it surfaced in, in, in Britain in the 1500s openly under what they called the Rosicrucian Society. Uh, Queen Elizabeth I's court uh, was comprised of members of the Rosicrucian Society. Francis Bacon was a member and so was John Dee. So all our top advisors, uh, Walter Raleigh, the, 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 the seagoing pirate, and, and Francis Drake and the rest of them all belonged to these particular lodges uh, at the court. Yeah. Is, there any, is there any evidence that, that Oriental despotism was returned back to England, that idea from the East to, uh, to, to establish some of these mechanisms of rule, hidden rule, and they never rule. lost them. These mem- you see, I want to understand, too, for dynastic rule and intergenerational dynastic rule, you always teach the upper elite a- a- an alternate history that the public are given. And you can go back again to the days of the pharaoh, and it's written down in lots of stellas. We've got the tablets and so on where the job of the priest was to, to, to get the young, up-and-coming pharaoh and training, train him into the real histories of managing the minds, the mentality of vast herds of people. 
that was the first thing they were taught, how, how the rest of the people thought, how they would arrive at conclusions, how the religion that they were given would keep them bound to a certain level and they'd never ever figure things out beyond that. These were sciences that were known in ancient times and then that was all brought into uh, Greece and then Rome. Rome became the empire, took over from Greece and they, they were also taught that in the higher quarters of Rome and from, from Rome it came in when it changed its hats and became the, the Catholic Church where they used religion rather than armies and it was more successful in fact although they did use armies to back it up with Charlemagne and others, um, they also taught that to the, the nobility in the, the European countries. So they were always taught the histories, at least beginning, at very least beginning, with Greece and then Rome uh, onwards. They were always taught these histories and how people were ruled and how you would keep them ruled. It was never, ever lost. It was always passed down and taught to the ruling class. Well, so whether it came from the East or the West, it was embedded in the elitist uh, method of ruling and dominating. Oh, absolutely. And they'd already done comparisons in the 1500s of, of the rulership of China and how China under Confucianism um, put the family first, but the family, family was there to serve the state. Going back to, to the Greek system, the Greeks were taught a formal education of, of respecting the gods, they could, it was more like magic, you could ask them for favors. Um, but you could also discuss it quite openly at the table, what you thought about the gods without having family arguments or fights. That the downfall of the Greeks, even though they were allowed to, to question into the sciences, the downfall of the Greeks was that they were called progressive, but uh, they had a tendency to battle each other. The top psychopathic families would battle each other for dominance, and that's how they eventually fell to an extent. Rome did the same kind of thing, uh, whereas China became a stagnant civilization with a, a small intelligentsia uh, that kept them uh, without what they called progress. We've got to cut away here for a second. We'll be right back, Alan. Yes. Getting very good. Thank you. News, politics, cover-ups, government corruption. You're listening to We the People Radio Network. WTPRN. Welcome back to World Review Commentary. I'm your host, George Butler, along with... Charlotte Littlefield Brown. Welcome back, Alan Watt. It's a pleasure to be on. Alan, tell us about some of your personal workings, uh, works like um, not only writings, but didn't you do some music and things like that? Yes, I've, I've been involved heavily in the in the music industry as well and other things. But I I, uh, I, I took music for a, a long time. I, I went across the world playing with different groups. I did some rock musicals. I wrote lots of songs and sold them. And I also played solo as well. On occasion, I'd go and do classical guitar or, or some other instrument. Classical guitar. What oh. other instruments do you play besides guitar? Uh, piano and a few woodwind instruments. Oh, really? Uh-huh. <laughs> hey, you know, I've been meaning to get you to send me some of your music, maybe, and we'll have it on a program next time. 
Yes. Mm-hmm. I would love to hear some of your music unless you can set it up for the next hour or two. No, it's too bad. Yeah, huh? I have to dig stuff out. Okay. I threw a lot of stuff out. So much stuff. I had a lot of master copies. I'd never, I'd never even published yet, and I threw them out a while back. Really? <laughs> yeah. Well, so, so you're really into music. Did you translate into your music your worldview and your feelings about, about what's going on? It, most of the, a lot of the songs put it that way, I, I would, yeah. So, so, and then, of course, you, you started writing. When did you write these three books? Uh, when did that begin? When did your writing career begin? Uh, I've written other books uh, under other names on uh, histories and so on and religions. But for this particular purpose, I started these books going a bit higher on a different level, um, bypassing academia to an extent, because academia is there to keep you in a box. It's not meant to expand your way of thinking or inquiry. And so about uh, uh, five years ago, I started uh, doing these kind of books and having them printed myself and posting them off myself because publishing houses will either take your copyright or else they'll demand that you make certain changes. And I didn't want that. I wanted to start uh, having stuff that was not censored getting put out to the public. You'd be surprised how many sides in the conflict, this is a conflict we're in, it's a war. And the strategy has always been to give the people who recognize something is wrong and they look for an alternate way to understand it, they always give you your leaders. It's a standard technique going back for uh, thousands of years. And it's the same with, with a lot of the big authors they put out there that, that fascinate you and will keep you going in circles. They will give you intelligence, which is knowledge, but they also put in a lot of fantasy or time-wasting uh, uh, attachments to it. And that's called counterintelligence because you can take the truth, mix it with uh, fantasy, and then when people hear it, they discard the truth. The baby goes out with the bathwater. That's classic uh, counterintelligence. Do you think that, that there's been more of a fantasy world created for our young people through these computer games and all those dynamics? Oh, there's no doubt. Uh, uh, I think the first person who, who talked about in any depth to the public, that is, we're always the last to know, was Zygmunt Brzezinski in his book Between Two Ages. He said back in the early 70s, it's, it's shortly a, a technique or a form of communication will be given to the general public. Um, but the intent of it, even though the public would think it was going to free them, the intent of it would eventually be to, to give a standardized culture, but also it's intended for, for total information gathering. Alan, i got a question for you. Uh, that's uh, returning back uh, to the history that you were providing us. Uh, two, part, two questions. The first one is, uh, is that information, uh, which one of your books is that particular information pertaining to the higher sciences? Uh, which I, one? I mm-hmm. It's mainly to do with the mind itself. I show you by putting it in front of you where your mind has to interact with what you're reading is a different technique from what you're trained in. What you're trained in is to be downloaded in Parrot and have everything explained in baby language. That's the standard book. Uh, You don't participate in thought. Here's the rules. Here's what you're learning. Uh, Repeat after me. The way I write, I try to make your mind start to wake up as it's supposed to so that you can get into the information and your mind takes over and you run with that information as you're reading it. It's a technique of waking up uh, the mind. We're only using 10% of our brain and that's not by accident. 
So, so you're writing, you're writing to, to create an, a curiosity and, and, and an awakefulness of that reader. Yeah, I go in, in, in the first two books, I go into, I, I mix what used to be called the occult, this meaning the hidden, and I also put in certain coding. I put things that you should have understood all your lives but didn't, even though they're in front of your face. And I show you the, 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 how it's been used for centuries on the public, including some of the fairy tales and myths that were taught, what they really mean. And in the third book, I go into the one thing that's been behind all of it since what they call the beginnings of civilization, and that was the money system. And I go back to ancient times to explain how the debt system and money, money was the first con job. Money was the first trick. It doesn't matter, even without an usury or interest, the guy who controls the money decides how much that money is worth. And once that happens, you've lost your power of barter and, and I, uh, your idea of swapping this for that, he then decides uh, how much you can swap for what. And so the, the money man has the power. But they got ancient countries into debt. They were building empires uh, from the days of the Phoenicians onwards. And they had slave cities along the Mediterranean uh, where they stocked them with slaves. They built factory towns who produced their goods. And uh, it's very much like the, the, the new free trade system that we're now into where you have China as the, the present uh, slave state with, with wage slaves working in factories who are locked in the factories, many of them, and uh, producing the goods for the West. They're the present wage slaves, although technically we're all wage slaves because even higher-level government officials have admitted to me, yes, and in this system we live in, everyone works for the government. We all pay uh, about uh, for at least 40% of our income to the government. John, John Perkins, in his book... Uh economic hit man testified that this was going on on a world basis so yes. you've, you've you've written about that also oh yeah it's, it's, it's a world basis in other words Wherever... this subjugation of countries to debt is nothing uh, is gotten worse is is that your opinion oh, oh yeah i mean the spartans held off this system for a long long time and uh country after country had fallen as the, as the bankers moved in lent money uh, created a, a spoiled middle class, waited one or two generations to become m more spoiled and borrowed more. And then, of course, they collapsed the economy and uh, in would come the bankers with their advisors and they would run the countries. They'd then create standing armies because they would issue money uh, for pay. You cannot keep an army together without pay. And then they would use those armies that they'd just uh, taken over uh, or created and go off and conquer other countries. That's what an empire is. Most of the British Empire, um, so many of the troops, were consisted of troops from those countries they'd already conquered. Even ancient Rome did that when they went into Britain. Most of the Roman soldiers were actually Germanic. Has America been prepared to be the new Roman Empire, the new neocon, the the new world order? The the is that what America has been prepared for, or is being yeah. prepared? Yeah, it's in the founding fathers' own writings. Uh, Benjamin Franklin in his letters and Jefferson in his letters in the diary, you'll find right in there in their own words that uh, they hoped that this federation uh, would become a federation of the world and be run by a council of 12 wise men. Those are the words of uh, Franklin. I see. What, now, some of the founding principles ideas were, in my opinion, very good. You always have to have good ones, otherwise the people would reject yeah, it completely. Yeah. 
In other you words, know, you people only fight for ideals. They don't fight for tricks. <laughs> yeah, right. So, so this this uh, this Ron Paul candidacy is he espousing some ideals that are worthwhile? Oh, absolutely. Um, in every in every race, they always give you a third person who gives you more of the truth, more of what the ordinary person can see for themselves, and someone's voicing it for the first time at a higher level. Uh, you always get that. Um, but you don't understand. You see, the, the government that you have is a front. It's a front. It's not a real government. The government is a higher government above it running the show. And uh, it's the same in Britain. This is what was explained by Margaret Thatcher in Massey Hall in Toronto when she gave a speech in the 1990s, early 90s, called the, the, the New World Order. And she said all the ex-politicians and the higher-level bureaucrats of all countries that belong to the United Nations have formed a parallel government. She says we are unimpeded, unhindered by the voters' choices. So they have power and they can work it. They're funded by the big institutions. Right. And uh, aren't they trying to get, uh, in theory, a a carbon tax would be used to fund them? And uh, Alex Jones, you know, the uh, Bilderberg Group, Mm -hmm. it's a... you know, it's yeah. an interesting concept. Do you feel that those are uh, part of the mechanisms? All of your, everything that you take for granted is part of one system. Uh, it's, it's all one corporation, really, uh, with different specialized branches belonging to it. You know, I see something, uh, this, and of course what we're up against is ty- uh, maritime law, maritime um, corporatism, uh, corporate law, rather than law of the land or common law. It's a it's a competing of the two. One is puts us in a subjugation and oppression, and the other one empowers us. Um, yeah, yeah, it gives you more choices for sure. Yeah. We'll talk about that on the other side of the break, I guess. Yeah, we've uh, got just a one minute on the top of the hour, Alan. So we'll be back pretty quick with you. We'll continue this. And that encryption thing, in other words, our language, I started thinking about that a number of years ago too. Is that language itself? There's an encrypt. It's encrypted. Oh, and some I people know how to how to decipher it, and others don't, right? Sure. <laughs> yeah. We'll be right back. I'd like to. Sure. Be right back. Thank you, Anna. 